0: I'm wearing my camp watch. I pull this out every year, and usually it's the day before we go to camp I put it on. Unfortunately, that's about the only preparation I've had time to make this year for camp. So it's going to be a very busy day at my house. But please pray for us this year. Uh, Over the years, uh, we've seen the Spirit do amazing things at camp. And it's it's done through your prayers. Uh, We rely on those prayers. They comfort us, and we ask you to pray with us during the week. Uh, for Kids Camp. And, and please pray specifically that the Spirit would be moving there and saving kids. Uh, as you look at my first slide up there behind me, you might feel a little bit disoriented. This lesson is the 15th and the final installment on the series that we began back in January and placed on hold in May when Bob left town. Uh, that long gap between the f- lessons 14 and 15 It's kind of driven by the juggling that we had to do to fill the pulpit for those weeks while Bob and Jeanette were gone. You might remember that before Memorial Day, Wayne Denny preached, and then for the past four weeks, Jack Fish uh, preached on the book of Habakkuk. This week, we will finish the series, Can We Do Church Cafeteria Style? And according to our schedule, Orville will preach next week, and then Bob will return to the pulpit on the 13th and begin a series on the book of Hebrews. Now, to help us reconnect uh, to the series, since it has been a while, I'm going to go to a slide that shows you a list of the topics that we covered. Okay, I'm not going to keep looking back there, but trust that that is tracking with me, and if it's not, John, please wave at me. This slide shows where we've been in the series. We tried to explore some of the important aspects of our church and explain from the scriptures what we do and why we do it. We began in Lessons 1 and 2, discussing the ecclesiology and the church in general terms. Now, ecclesiology, you'll remember, is a study of the function and the operation of the church. It's how we do church, so to speak. After that, Bob worked on explaining the roles of the Reformation and tradition in the modern church in Lessons 3 and 4. Lesson 5 is what I kind of see as the core of the series. In it, Bob laid out a model for evaluating church practice, I'm going to show you that model again in just a minute, and I'm going to make extensive use of it in this message. Lesson 6 drew attention to the fact that while we have Scripture as a guide and we ought to carefully use Scripture when we're making decisions regarding our ecclesiology, the correct application of New Testament church principles will result in a church that displays the love of Christ and is characterized by the presence and direction of the Holy Spirit. Legalism, for instance, has no home in the, the correct New Testament church. The balance of the series was a succession of topical studies on key elements of doing church. We felt from the outset that any series on ecclesiology should include a lesson on giving and finance, and that's what we're covering today is Lesson 15. If I had to nail down a couple of reasons for you uh, on why we're actually doing this lesson, I'd offer these. First, money and giving to the Lord's work are common themes throughout the Scriptures, both Old Testament and New. As such, the use of money is an important topic for our church, as well as for each of us individually. Now at CBC, we rarely address giving directly, at least not in the teaching, and this seems like a good opportunity to do so. There's a lot of questionable teaching and writing on the topic of money out there. A lot of it's related to encouraging Christians to give more, or even worse, guilting Christians into giving more. And so looking at the scriptures and what they actually say about giving today, again, should have some merit for us. Now, please keep in mind that this is not a comprehensive message on giving. Such a message could fill volumes. It could be a year-long series, which I'm certainly not up for. Neither are you, I'm sure. And I'm not going to try to sprint down a lot of rabbit trails this morning. Uh, I'm going to close the series on can we serve church cafeteria style with the goal of considering one more time the theme of how do we apply the scriptures to the New Testament church, about the New Testament church, to our practices when we evaluate our ecclesiology. And in this case, specifically, uh, we're going to apply that to the topic of giving and finance in the local church. I don't plan to avoid personal application, but as much as possible, I'll try to address the applications that relate to us corporately as a local church. What we'll end up with is a blend of both. And also, I'll be doing some application in three pieces in the message. I'm not going to wait till the end and dump it on you at the last. So this is probably an appropriate time to give a few disclaimers for the sake of clarity. Now, these are some of the reasons... W- these are some of the things that are not reasons why we're doing this message. We're not doing this message because of our current deficit. It's about 14% if you looked in the bulletin last week. In fact, this is quite normal for us this time of year, and we're not troubled by that. And this message is not an attempt to bring in more money. This is not a preparation for a capital campaign. Yeah, some of you that have done those before are laughing because you know how horrible they are. Um, <laughs> If we were to grow, for instance, to the point where we didn't fit in this building anymore, getting any bigger would mean that we couldn't do church the way we do it. We couldn't have our open worship service and have it meaningful. We couldn't uh, relate to one another in community the way we do, knowing and being known by the flock. So I would hope and pray that if that were to happen, and it would be a great thing if it did happen, but if it did, I would hope that we would hive off another church and not do anything to get larger as a church. So no, we're not going to kick off any campaigns this morning. This message is also not being driven by any feeling that giving is a fundamental weakness in this congregation. It's not being brought to you to take anyone to task. If it's encouraging to you, that's great, but the message isn't meant to be corrective. And I think I'm going to go a little bit farther on that point. Not only is it not meant to be corrective, but this church, more than any other I think that I've ever been associated with, is a giving church. The general fund giving, the designated giving that you do to benevolence and to missions and the many countless person-to-person acts of giving that I'm aware of over the years that didn't go through the accounts of the church, really are exemplary. Giving overall is a strength of this church, it's not a weakness, And I think I speak for the elders when I say that on the topic of giving, we feel a bit like Paul who wrote this to the church at Thessalonica. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. I believe this church pleases God in the way that it gives. Let's continue doing that, and together, let's seek ways to excel still more. Now, since I'm going to be borrowing heavily from the model that Bob proposed in Lesson 5 to lend some structure to my thoughts, it's probably a good idea to show you a portion of that slide and review it quickly to give you some context. I cheated. I did look. There's uh, a slide that Bob showed in Lesson 5. Now, the way Bob presented this model was to explain that our practices as a church and I might add as individuals should be able to stand up to this kind of analysis. First, biblical doctrine. That should be the foundation for all of our practices. We should be able to look at our practices and trace them back to the larger doctrines in scripture, specifically those that relate to the nature of God. And Bob used an example when he taught this lesson 5 where he pointed out that the character of God as seen in creation is an example for us as we do church, that the church should do all in an orderly way and do all things well the way God did in creation. Second, biblical principles are a bit more concrete than the areas of doctrine or are narrower in scope. For instance, Bob used the principle of male leadership, which is found in numerous places in Scripture, and used that as an example that has direct application to New Testament ecclesiology. Third, biblical commands are even more specific than biblical principles, and they have a feeling of apostolic gravity to them, at least the ones from the New Testament do. And I would add here as a point of clarification that Old Testament commands that were given under the law or as part of the law are not necessarily applicable to the New Testament church and its practices. The coming of the New Covenant reorients the responsibility of God's people, and we should seek to observe and obey New Testament commands and practice in the church today. Fourth, Biblical examples. This, I think, is where we usually have the hardest time. The New Testament doesn't give many how-to lists when it comes to ecclesiology. Matthew 18 and the lists of qualifications for elders and deacons are two notable exceptions to that. Those are places where we're giving a procedure and we're giving a checklist to use to make sure that we don't mess it up. Those things are just so important. But elsewhere in the New Testament, we usually don't have uh, quite as much structure to go by as far as examples. Now, where we do find examples of apostolic practice, however, we should carefully note it and either seek to apply it or we should really agonize over why we don't. I think that was one of Bob's points. Now, that in a nutshell is the model that I like to use this morning, and I like it for a couple reasons. One, having multiple levels. There are four levels here, as you see on the screen. gives you multiple opportunities to sniff out weak cases. So if you're, you're hitting well on doctrine and on principle, but you really don't see anything on commands, that should tell you something. Two, this model is not a true or false test. It doesn't give you a binary answer, but it does give you a feel for the strength of your argument. Three, it balances the large-scale Bible doctrines with the small-scale New Testament examples. And four, it assists you in bringing the breadth of Scripture to bear on your topic. In fact, if you're doing this conscientiously, it kind of forces you to do that. So have you gotten the impression that I like the model? I, I do. I think it's really useful, and I hope it sticks for you, too. So that's the model I want to use, and let's begin to look at our topic. To get us warmed up, I wanted to start with an example that relates to the topic of giving and financing the church. There are scores of different examples that could be used here, but since the point of the series is, can we do church cafeteria style, or to put it another way, does it really matter how we do church, can we do it any way we want to, I thought it would be helpful to select an example that relates to our corporate giving. The most obvious example of this is our offering. Now, we don't seem to talk a lot at CBC about how we do the offering. As Bob would say, it's not really a current itch, but I think it's worthy of consideration nonetheless. Here's why. The time we spend together on Sunday morning is very limited. In fact, whenever the elders consider making changes to the schedule, we really agonize over minutes and what we leave in, what we take out, what we adjust. The time is really important, and the offering is part of that time. So we have very little time together on Sundays. We really need to make it count. Uh, Also, the way we allocate time and attention on Sunday morning reflects our priorities, and I think it's a silent commentary on what we believe about God and our responsibilities as a church. You've heard it said before that if you show me your checkbook, I can tell you what's important to you. I think if you show me your Sunday morning schedule, I can probably tell you what's important to your church, at least your leadership. Our attitudes about money and our use of money is important to God. He has a lot to say about that in Scripture. And having an offering and the way we do it reveals something about the state of our hearts as a church, I believe, before God. I believe He cares about it. The way we do various things corporately, such as the Lord's table, baptisms, and yes, the offering, teach our values and teach our theology to newcomers and to our children. I think Joe said a few words about that in the worship service last week when he opened And finally, the offering makes a good test case for applying our model because it's familiar to all of us, and the scriptures have a lot to say about the topic, and considering it in this lesson really won't be very difficult. This will be our last opportunity to revisit the, the importance of ecclesiology. So as I said, I believe it really does matter how we do the offering, but that's not to say there's only one right way to do it. What it really means is that each local church should consider the scriptures And what they have to say on the topic and seek to follow the Holy Spirit's leading and come up with a method that they think they are being led to use. And we're not to be judgmental or prideful, but we should be convinced in our own hearts that what we are doing is what the Lord wants us to do according to the scriptures and under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So is our method of doing the offering informed or supported by the scriptures? Let's see. You all know what we do here at CBC with the offering. We include it in the worship service after we finish the Lord's table. And we don't schedule a man to do the offering. A man will volunteer, and he'll get up, and he'll say a few words, and he usually ties that into uh, the theme of the morning from the worship service. And then um, he blesses the offering in prayer. We pass the plates. Special music happens. We all enjoy that. Then afterwards, two people count the offering, and the checks get cashed, and we publish the results in the bulletin next week. So why do we do it this way? Have you ever pondered that? Is this a good method? A better question may be, is this method good according to Scripture? But again, gain perspective, let me present to you an alternative method from a church that Rebecca and I attended some 15 years ago when we lived in Houston. A few of you are familiar with that church. I see Martin Toohey here. Martin actually attended that church when he was a youth. And Ron and Jackie Calkins had family there. I know that they're familiar with that church as well. And that church had a different method. That church did not include an offering in their worship service. That church really didn't talk about money or pray about money corporately, as I can remember. That church, what they did, they took a box and they put it in the back of the sanctuary, and then they printed a couple of sentences in the bulletin inviting believers to give if they felt led, and they left it at that. And at the time, I thought that was pretty good. I liked that. It felt kind of counter-cultural for an evangelical church. It was very functional. And it seemed to be acting in faith. They seemed to be relying on the Lord to provide for them. And it was one of the distinctives of the church that I think I was generally pleased with. But how should we evaluate that method? Is it more scriptural than our traditional method? So we're going to use this example as our test case for applying that model for scriptural application. And then we're going to come back to these questions later in the hour. Let's look at some scriptures. Doctrines related to church finances. Our first task in using the model is to consider some key doctrines that relate to church finances. In my thinking, the goal is to consider what we know about the character of God and relate it to the question at hand. The purpose of this is to try to ensure our practice aligns with what we know to be true about God according to the scriptures. Now, none of these lists that I'm going to show you are exhaustive. I'm sure you can add to them, but those are some things that I picked in the interest of time that I think relate to our topic God is self-sufficient. I'd like to offer a clip from Paul's sermon on Mars Hill from Acts chapter 17 to illustrate this. He said, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made of hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. This is a key point to remember when thinking about church finance and giving. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need our money. God is self-sufficient in every way, and giving to the local church or any other Christian activity is not about giving God the resources that he needs. B. God is sovereign. His sovereign will is always done. His work is never thwarted. We see this point throughout Scripture. Here's one example in Psalm 103. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. God sits outside of his creation and never lacks the power or the means to do his will. One important implication of this truth is that God's work will be done, regardless of anyone's giving or lack of giving. Sometimes God allows us to contribute to his work, and sometimes he uses others, and sometimes he does it a completely different way. His work is never thwarted by a lack of giving. See, God is gracious. He gives generously. This truth is universal. He gives generously to his people, and he gives generously to his enemies through common grace. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pointed this out. He said, You have heard it said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, notice how Jesus links this application, in this case, loving your enemy, to a doctrinal truth about God. He's telling his listeners to imitate God's character, and that's exactly what we're trying to do in this part of the exercise, understand the linkage between God's character and our practice. We also read in Proverbs 10.22, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. God delights to give. It is part of his character. God is loving. We see this best when we consider our salvation and the costly gift of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is the Bob Defenbaugh version, but John 3.16 says, For God loved the world in this way... That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation is a gift to us, but it came at a terrible cost to God. Think about how that happened. He sent his son Jesus, part of the Godhead, into the creation that Jesus brought into being. Jesus took on flesh, an action that has eternal consequences for him. He has a physical body today in heaven. Jesus suffered all kinds of pains and indignities, all the bad things about living in the world that we suffer, and Jesus died the cruelest death that a very cruel people could devise. Now, that is a high cost. God gave sacrificially at Calvary. So how can we generalize or summarize across these points as they relate to giving and finance? First, we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that our giving is critical to completing God's work. It is just simply not true. He is self-sufficient, and his work is always done. Second, we are told to imitate God, to be holy because he is holy. His character is the example that we should seek to emulate, and this includes giving. How can we apply these doctrines to our giving? First, keep a proper perspective in regards to our church finances. If we are faithful, God will give our church work to do, and he will also give us the means to do it. Do not doubt his provision. Do not shrink away from big objectives or big tasks. And if you ever start to waver, place an emergency call to Ron Manis. ask him for a biography on George Mueller, and start reading. (laughs) It'll bring you down, and you'll be okay. So, Ron, prepare for a rush. Actually, I've got the new one out that you just got in. They're going to have to wait for me. We serve a big God, and he is faithful to provide for his people. He is faithful to provide for his work. Another application is be open-handed both corporately as a church and as individuals. God gives generously and sacrificially to us. We honor him when we give the same way. When the world looks at us, they should see the family resemblance. When they ask why we are oddly generous, we should immediately respond by talking about our Father, who is more generous than we are. It glorifies him when we give. Being open-handed has its own requirements, doesn't it? To achieve it, we need to be financially ready to give, and this requires us to have some margin, to have some ability to give when opportunities arise. It also requires us to be aware of needs. Do you see needs around you? They are around you. We need to train ourselves to look and notice when people have needs or things need to be done. We also need to be willing to take some risks. I find it kind of ironic because, face it, we've all done some stupid things with our money, right, in the past. We won't admit to it today, but we've done it in the past. But when we're asked for help, we suddenly become experts in discerning bad stewardship. You know, we're to be careful with our money, true, but we're not to look for a reason not to give. We shouldn't default to no unless we can prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's good stewardship. In unclear cases, I think the tie should go to the asker, and I think it's okay to make a mistake now and then. I think God agrees. I think God thinks it's okay for you to make a mistake out of generosity. So be open-handed. Principles. Principles relating to church finances. As we consider the principles that we find in Scripture that relate to this topic, you'll notice that these points are even narrower and more leading than the doctrines that we just covered. First, one cannot serve two masters. This principle contains a caution to the church. Matthew six twenty-four: No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This verse, of course, is from the Sermon on the Mount. The verses preceding it uh, encourage us to forego that normal human tendency to try to mass up a pile of treasure on earth, but instead to lay up treasure in heaven. The verses after it deal with the anxiety that we can feel regarding our material well-being. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said, and trust God to make sure that you will have what you need to live as he is faithful to his people. Taken together, these texts instruct us to prioritize our service to God and to His work above our material pursuits. We're not to make getting rich our goal and we're not to hoard in order to protect ourselves. Our devotion must not be to earthly things, but it should be to God. Be the principle of honoring one who is in authority by giving them a significant gift. Hebrews 7, 1 through 4 is a very curious passage to me. I'm going to read it for you. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, Priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, it was first of all, by the translation of his name, the King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made in the, like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. I'm looking forward to hearing what Bob will tease out of this passage when he gets to it in a few weeks in Hebrews. And it's certainly rich in meaning. But the one point I wanted to bring out here was that the writer of Hebrews does make the point that Abraham's gift to Melchizedek and Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham proved that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. The giver Abraham was a great man in his own right, And the recipient, Melchizedek, was honored with his gift. We seem to have somewhat lost this distinction in our culture. We no longer pay tribute to a a lord or a vassal that that we feel a, a connection to that way. And I don't think that when we pay our taxes, many of us really feel like we're honoring them with that gift. In fact, our government doesn't really give us the chance to hand it over, do they? They actually come to our places of business, and they take it from us before those checks are even written through payroll deduction. So we don't have an honor principle there. But I do think we retain the concept of honoring with a gift in some ways. One of those is engagement rings. Now, men, can you remember how hard you worked and saved to buy the engagement ring for your wives? Do you remember that? I do. I was really motivated. Now, when we gave those rings to our future wives, we were making a statement, weren't we? And it was a statement not about us, I hope. It was about them. It was was to demonstrate to her and also to other potential suitors and to her friends and to your mother-in-law and all those people just how precious and valuable she was to us. It was a big deal. We tried to honor her with that gift. And for a lot of us, that's going to be the single largest gift we ever give. And that's really fitting, isn't it? It's that big of a deal. Well, that's the idea here. Significant gifts honor the recipient. I'm going to quickly touch on the next principle, and then we'll do a little bit longer in the last one. The principle of the body of Christ. We spent a lot of time on this last fall in our series of spiritual gifts. And what I just want to point out is that we are joined together in the body of Christ. And that's an honor and it's a privilege. And the body of Christ is to care for itself by caring one to another. So the gift of giving is so important that the Holy Spirit gives that to the body of Christ and certain individuals, not only so they can provide, but also so that they can teach and encourage giving in the body. It's that important. The principle of stewardship. In Luke 12, Jesus, at the end of a talk about faithful stewards and unfaithful slaves, talked about how they will be treated when the master returns. Uh, Luke 12, 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. And this cuts to the heart of the principle of stewardship. In essence, stewardship is possessing things that were entrusted to you and remembering who owns them and treating them the way the owner would treat them. As employees, we have stewardship to our employers. It's a very important principle. has universal importance, but it should be Rather unsettling to us in places like this, in churches like this, where we are blessed with so much material wealth. We as elders in a corporate sense, and we as individuals will be held accountable. We'll be judged someday as to how we use the resources we were entrusted with. And our goal must be to use our resources for God's glory, as He is the rightful owner of all, and we are merely caretakers. So what is a common element across these four principles? I would say it is authority. We to recognize God's rightful authority over us and not devote ourselves to seeking wealth. We demonstrate that we are under God's authority as good stewards when we submit our material things and giving to God for the benefit of his work and for the benefit of his church. What applications can we draw from these principles? One, our giving is important for many reasons, one of which is that it helps us keep our priorities straight. Priorities straight. Week after week or as often as we do it when we write that check, it's a reminder, a tangible reminder that all that we have is really owned by God and it's been entrusted to us. Two, everyone should give something. Our giving isn't about making an impact. It's not about the size. If it were, someone who is in a very dire place financially could reasonably opt out and simply not give. But it's not about that. It's about making a statement, about a statement about who we seek to honor and who is in authority over us. Regular giving is important no matter how small the amount. Three, giving becomes worship when we do it with the proper motivation. Giving to God out of love and devotion to him glorifies him, as we saw in the case of Melchizedek. That redeems our corporate giving from being a method of collection and it elevates it to the level of worship. If we want to honor God with this part of our lives and with this part of our service, we need to approach it the right way. Now, I'm often encouraged by various members of the body that will talk about their preparation for worship. That might include time spent in prayer and confession. It might be spending time in the Word. It might even be going to a brother or sister and saying, hey, we have a problem between us. Let's fix it and do that before worship. I'm encouraged by that because, in general, I think you take that very seriously. And I would suggest that our giving through the offering is an act of worship as well. And we need to give some thought to how we do it. We need to give some thought to how we prepare our hearts and how we express ourselves to the Lord in that way. I'd like to take a few minutes as an aside and address stewardship in the context of finances at CBC and explain to you how the elders try to be good stewards with what we've been entrusted. And I know there's a lot of small words up there. I'm pretty much going to run through them, so don't worry if you're having trouble reading them. First, we recognize the Lord's constant faithful provision for us these past 32 years. We have complete confidence in God in his love for us, his provision for us, and we want to recognize him now and always for his kindness to us. Two, we trust God to give our church the resources it needs to do the work that he wants us to do. And this is really true. We don't agonize over giving in the middle of the year when it's low like this. We want to listen to the Lord's leading in ministry and plan to do those things. And we know that he always provides for his work. Three, we purpose to spend wisely and deliberately. We worry about spending too little as much as spending too much. We evaluate our spending during the year. We make adjustments. And we want to make sure that those we partner with, our missionaries and other organizations, are also good stewards. And we want to make sure that their ministry goals align with ours. Now, we really mean that spending too little on ministry could be even worse than spending too much in a non-essential area. Our spending should in some way reflect our priorities and what God has asked us to do. Four, we have no debt and intend to remain debt free. Our mortgage was paid off a few years ago, and that enables the church to be debt free, so none of the giving to the church goes to debt service. We intend to keep it that way. Five, we have purpose not to know what individuals give to CBC. Now, while we feel it's our responsibility to teach on the topic of giving and teach you what the scriptures say, we've purposed not to know what any individual actually gives. This has been a long-standing policy of the elders, perhaps since the beginning. Six, we want to be fair to staff and responsibly maintain our facilities, but we really strongly desire to maximize what we spend on ministry programs, outreach, and missions. This is probably an appropriate time to say that from time to time we receive designated gifts for projects around the building, uh, that great new elevator that we have was uh, made possible in part by a generous gift from an anonymous giver. And we have another project that's coming up soon, which is going to be to replace uh, the windows here above the baptismal with some some really nice stained glass. And that's a project that some families feel strongly about giving to bless the body. It's not coming out of our budget, but it's being done under the oversight and authority of the elders. And we are very appreciative for those types of gifts. But you you may see that time to time and that's not coming out of our budget, but it's something that I think we'll all enjoy. Uh, Seven, our books are accurate and open to the congregation. We're committed to orderly books and we we share information a few times a year in summary form. If you'd like to know more, we are happy to provide more information to you. Finally, we're committed to meeting legitimate physical and financial needs of the flock and caring for widows and orphans. We think that's part of our mission as a church, and we seek to be involved in significant ways meeting needs. And we we administer a benevolence program, and we delight to see money given to that program and to see the money's dispensed. It's really a great thing. We take it very seriously. So those are some of the principles that govern our financial stewardship. Let's move on to commands. The third level of the model is examines some of the commands from Scripture. Matthew six one and three, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them; otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is heaven. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We've already touched on the concept of proper giving. This command is what's broader than just giving, but it points out that there's no spiritual value and no spiritual benefit to the giver for doing giving that's motivated by a desire to impress others. So why would that be? Well, our giving really is to draw attention to the goodness of our God. And if we're doing it in such a way that it draws attention to ourselves, no one is going to be looking at our God. They're going to be looking at us. So it, it misses the point of giving. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare in many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. There's way too much to unpack in that verse for us to do it all here, but it clearly tells us to be content with what we have. Now, that's a very un-American thing to say. You're not going to hear any of the candidates this fall in the presidential race telling the voters, be content. They're not going to say it. You know it's true. So this tells us to flee the love of money also. Now often you're going to hear this verse misquoted. I've heard this many times. People will say money is the root of all evil. Don't believe it. That's not what the text says. It tells us the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. It's it's very clear. Money itself is neutral. It's the love of money that's a problem. We already saw that it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. If the blessing of the Lord makes people rich, we shouldn't conclude that money is inherently bad. Money is neither good nor evil. It's just a tool. It's our hearts that become evil when we develop a love for it instead of God. This concept is important, and being free from the love of money is included in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as a qualification for elders, and deacons have their own qualification, which is do not be fond of sordid gain. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. Now I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, televangelists love verse 6. You've heard it before, too. This verse is is commonly used to raise money, to try and raise money from people that are either greedy or maybe people that are in difficult financial situations that can be convinced that if they just give more to God, they will get more. Now, those types of interpretations that you can prime God's money pump with your giving are simply wrong. God is able to replenish our giving, and he does delight in giving to the generous. But this passage also points out that proper, acceptable, New Testament-style giving begins in the heart. It's not a matter of calculating the correct percent of your income, or worse, the amount of money God might give you back if you give. It's about being moved by the Holy Spirit to give and then acting on that inspiration. In generosity. Giving is to get, giving to get is wrong motivation. It is not rewarded. Giving starts in the heart. It will be done freely and cheerfully. And this is pleasing to God. Second Corinthians eight, seven and eight. This is actually not a command, but it's an interesting command related verse. So I pulled it in executive privilege there. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Paul here is speaking to the church in Corinth. The gracious work he is referring to is a financial gift that the Corinthians began to work on a year previously, but did not complete. Paul here exhorts them to complete the gift. Now notice how Paul scrupulously avoids making his exhortation into a command. Why is this? I believe it relates directly to the command we just examined in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In fact, it confirms it. What happens if Paul commands the Corinthians to follow through on the gift? Can they give from their hearts then? Are they more likely to give? Can they give as cheerfully if he commands them? As much as Paul desires to see the Corinthians make this gift, and one might even say he could be justified in issuing a command because they communicated an intention, a a commitment that they didn't fulfill, he clearly refrains from framing it as a command. This is further evidence that New Testament giving is spirit-led, not compulsory giving. The theme that I see in these four texts is the importance of the heart in matters of money and giving. Our hearts must be free from the love of money. Proper motivations for giving are spiritual, coming from the heart, not from greed or compulsion. What are some applications that we can derive from these commands? Our procedures for accepting and reporting gifts as a church should enable and encourage anonymity, and I believe they do. As I said, the the elders don't see what anyone gives, and no one outside the business office does. Gifts must be recorded for tax purposes, but that's about all we do with it. We've also set up some anonymous methods of giving, like the Benevolence Fund and the Missions Fund, that you can give to that are administered by faithful men and women who use good stewardship and make tough decisions in using that money. I think you would be pleased with the way they administer it, as I am. So we want to help facilitate proper giving, giving that's thoughtful and maximizes the anonymity of the gift. As a church, we must be careful about asking for money. Our primary tools for communication are the congregational meeting, leadership meeting, the summary in the bulletin when it comes to money, And we really want everyone to know where we are financially on any given week. That's why we print that in the bulletin. But we don't want to encourage giving out of guilt. We don't want to encourage giving out of any type of compulsion. We desire the gifts to be properly motivated. We want them to glorify God, and we want them to bring a spiritual blessing for you. That has a lot to say about the way we talk about money and the way we communicate our status. Okay, brace yourself. I'm going to take a shot at the tithe here. Many of the Christian writers and ministries today that help people with their money teach believers to tithe. by tithing, they usually mean giving 10% of your income to the Lord's work. And to their credit, they usually, at least the ones I'm familiar with, usually do address hard issues related to money. They talk about materialism. They talk about the overuse of credit, things like that. I think they do a lot of good work. I also think that their exhortations to give from the heart really are right on. I'm not saying that they're bad people or bad ministries. But the problem I have with tithing is the notion that 10% is somehow a perfect, good, and right number for someone to give. As neither Jesus nor the apostles taught on tithing, but they taught a lot about grace-based giving and generosity, I think we need to rethink the concept of the tithe. And here's a formula that I would suggest in its stead. One more, John. There we go. Again, if you can't read it, I'm going to read it for you. One, pray about your heart attitudes in giving. No proper giving can occur if your heart is not right. Stop using the term tithe. I think it has Old Testament law connotations that aren't relevant for the believer, and I think it causes confusion about the proper motivations for giving. I like the term grace giving instead. Develop and maintain correct priorities and attitudes about money. Now, this requires a lot of work and ongoing work, and it's hard. It requires... Studying the word, it requires prayer. Uh, You really have to guard your heart on that. Be responsible in spending. Do those things that they tell you they're good to do. Have a budget. Discipline yourself to live beneath your means. Get out of debt. Do those things which are also hard. Next one is give something. Now, this might be a tiny amount based on your financial situation, but give some money on a regular basis. Seek to increase the amount over time as the Holy Spirit leads you and as you're blessed. When you're blessed, if you have a windfall or an increase in income, don't spend it on yourself. Give some of it away. Take that opportunity to give more. Don't try to force 10% if you can't afford it while being otherwise responsible financially. And don't feel guilty about your number if it's under 10. That's not proper giving. On the other hand, don't limit yourself to 10% if you have the means to give more. Those that are wealthy probably should be giving a lot more than 10%. Give out of your abundance. In either case, seek to give at a level that has a sacrificial element to it. What I mean by that is seek to live somehow differently because you are giving to the Lord. Try to achieve a level of giving that requires some kind of financial accommodation. I think it's good for your heart, and I think it imitates God in the sacrificial nature of his giving. Do these things as the Holy Spirit works in you and do them cheerfully and freely. Give freely of your time and talent to the Lord as well, but do not neglect to give something financially. That's what I would suggest as a replacement for the 10% tithe. Now let's look at a few examples. We're running out of time. These are going to go really quickly. Uh, 1st Timothy five seventeen through 18 says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The early church did support gifted teachers. Uh, we see inference to this in 1st Corinthians chapter 9 and elsewhere, and Paul here is justifying the practice first Corinthians sixteen one through four. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. This example further demonstrates that the early church financially supported the poor. And it's a remarkable example. You have probably Gentiles uh, in Corinth being asked and encouraged to support Jewish believers in Jerusalem. International aid was going on 2,000 years ago. I find that very remarkable. Paul also instructs the church to be systematic and deliberate in their preparations to give, to avoid a shortfall or a last-minute rush when he arrives. Surely there's something there that we can take away. Paul also makes the point that giving is to be done by each one as he may prosper. I don't get the feeling that the people of Corinth were being pushed to hit a magic 10% mark. I think they were supposed to give generously. Also, Paul uh, takes care to provide safe, documented transportation for the gift. He's showing concern for good stewardship. He's also showing concern for the feelings of the givers in this instance. John 3, 5 through 8, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers, and they have testified of your love before the church. You will do well to send them on your way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. The early church supported missions work and traveling ministers. And it's interesting that John calls givers fellow workers with the truth. That's encouragement to give as well. Okay, I'm going to skip to my next slide. I know we're running out of time. So the offering. This is where we began, considering whether our traditional form of offering seems to be aligning better with the doctrines, principles, commands, and practices that we see in Scripture than the alternative. Now, the investigation of the model would suggest that the way a church accepts gifts should be more than just a collection function and that the procedure itself could have benefits for the saints beyond convenience. We saw that some of the goals and potential benefits of giving to the local church were fostering worship, building a sense of community and Christian fellowship, and encouraging one another. It would seem wise, therefore, I think, to select a method for the offering that makes good use of these opportunities. So how do, how do we score them? I threw some things up there. I think as far as doctrines go, they're tied. I don't see any difference. I think fostering worship, our traditional style of offering, does that because we have an opportunity to talk about the offering and frame it and talk about why we do it and pray. I think there's an edge. I think in building community, a traditional type of offering is better. When the offering is being done, you can look around the room, and you can see brothers and sisters worshiping through their gifts, and you can see that the money that does so much around our community here doesn't just come out of nowhere. It comes from the hands and the hearts of your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think there's a message in that, encouraging giving while we don't talk about giving very much from this pulpit, and maybe that's a good thing, the men who lead during the offering have a lot to say about giving. And I think their words are probably the best encouragement for us as far as being encouraged to give generously to the Lord. Uh, I don't really see any difference in examples, but I would say that I think our method, at least by these scores, would suggest that our method does something that the alternative method doesn't do. I think it... Captures more of the heart of New Testament giving. So, some concluding thoughts. With this, we conclude our series, Can We Serve Church Cafeteria Style? And I hope this morning our examination of the topic of giving and finance in the church achieved two things. I hope it reinforced the idea that the answer to our series title is no, we can't do church cafeteria style or a la carte. We can't do it brown bag either. We must do it family style, learning to enjoy and prefer all that our Father in his wisdom has instructed us to do in the scriptures. I hope you found something in this discussion of spirit-led giving to be liberating to you as you ponder the freedom and the blessings that we have as church-age believers under our Father in heaven. And I hope it's challenging to you as well as you consider our calling to imitate our heavenly Father who gives us things so freely and so sacrificially. That's it. Let's pray. Dear Father, you are our kind and good Father, and first we want to recognize your provision for us in all things. We thank you for providing for this church. We thank you for providing for our families and us as individuals. You have been so kind to do that. We thank you most of all for providing salvation for us through the work of the Lord Jesus and his sacrificial death at Calvary. Thank you for that. I pray that if anyone is within hearing of this message that doesn't know the Lord Jesus, that has not been washed by his blood, they would not consider giving to you, but instead would consider accepting the free gift of salvation that comes through his finished work. Please make us excel even more in our good works and in our giving. Help us have the right heart attitudes. Help us give out of thankfulness to you. And help us to give joyfully to your work. Please continue to bring us work to do, even hard work and big things that we can do for your namesake. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen.